0: Thank you. everybody I'm Chad Bokelman and welcome to the third episode of the Lantern cast presents Green Lantern Green Arrow I told you I would do it in February and I did it so there you go uh, um, <laughs> what uh, <laughs> we're still not covering Green Lantern Green Arrow yet because and I have a reason for this in the very first episode we talked about the history of the comics code and the reason we did that is so you guys got a feel for why the Green Lantern Green Arrow series is so important well, we recorded that episode in late 2012, and in early 2013, it came out from uh, a certain individual, Carol Tilly of the University of Illinois, that there that Wertham probably and it seems did falsify a lot of his research when it came to the stuff that he published specifically in Seduction of the Innocent, and that came out after the first episode of Green Lantern Green Arrow. So I wanted to have Carol on to talk about her findings in relation to Wortham, So uh, I've got Carol with me today. Hi, Carol. How are you doing? I'm great. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, so, Carol, just a little bit of background on you. I mean, both uh, professionally as well as you're also an avid comics fan, right?
1: I am, but I have to tell you, I'm not a superhero person, so please don't quiz me on uh, Green Arrow or Green Lantern, either one. (laughs) Uh, I I will disappoint you horribly. (laughs) Um, But my background: uh, I was a I was a librarian, uh, a high school librarian, and uh, I went back uh, to school, got a Ph.D. in information science. Uh, I've spent the last uh, about ten years uh, researching and writing about comics, um, mostly about libraries and kids and comics and where those three things come together. Uh, and so that was actually what led me to Wortham, not so much I, that I wanted to write about Wortham, but I really was curious uh, about his correspondence with librarians and teachers and, and to see uh, what they might have shared with him about their concerns for young readers and comics at the mid-century
0: yeah and you you published a paper uh, seducing the innocent Frederick Wortham and the falsifications that helped condemn comics for you, for you people who are out there uh, hoping to read it it's uh, you can find it fairly easy online I believe at academia the website
1: academia.edu
0: yeah it's it's on there it's about well 20 about 29 pages of text with about another 10 pages of, uh, of uh, whatever I forget the name of it I used to write... Foot,
1: footnote, footnotes <laughs> and endnotes yeah there you go <laughs> now I,
0: and I'm kind of I'm 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 gonna kind of play devil's advocate here. Okay. You are a comics fan, but you do s- set say explicitly towards the beginning of the paper that you didn't set out to discredit Wortham. But as we all know, as comic fans, when you get into Wortham, your gut knee jerk reaction is I hate Wortham, I hate Wortham, I hate Wortham. <laughs> so why don't you talk about that a little bit? What when you when you went to go. Research Wortham and everything, you said it was more leaning towards kids, his interaction with kids and librarians and professionals, right?
1: Right, right. You know, so my feeling about Wortham going into all of this, um, it, yeah, he, from a comics fan's perspective, uh, he is, you know, pretty awful. We can make him into this uh, effigy that we can. Uh, Burn and and you know put a lot of our angst about the downfall of comics in the fifties and, and the fallout from that uh, onto uh, but I I really felt like uh, a lot of other people had uh, for the last sixty years have have spent time uh, sort of putting Wortham and his work uh, in its place uh, pointing out. Uh, The bombast and the exaggeration and and sort of just the general ridiculousness of a lot of the stuff he had to say. And so when I went to the Library of Congress to take a look at his papers, and it's important for people to realize that he died in 1981 and his papers have been there pretty much the entire time uh, since his death. But it was only in 2010 that they were opened uh, to the public uh, for research. Uh, hmm. And so I, I went, uh, I wanted to go, you know, see this correspondence he had with librarians and teachers. And I, I really, I didn't go thinking, Oh, I'm going to find some uh, juicy secrets about Wortham. I'm going to you know, come up with some great uh, paper that everyone's going to love and you know, it's going to make me famous. I, I really didn't think that, but I, I've told people um, know repeatedly since all of this came out that within the first few hours of sitting down uh, in the the reading the manuscripts reading room at Library of Congress and and starting to look through some of these uh, 200 boxes of his papers there uh, I really began to understand something about him and about how he put together seduction of the innocent and I began to realize that I was seeing the the raw uh, raw book, his notes, his ideas, uh, what he uh, kept in, what he didn't. Uh, I was seeing the case files from these kids and a lot of it was really moving, but I I also was beginning to sense that what was there in the notes uh, was not exactly what came out in the book always uh of course there were some things that yes it, you know it said x in the notes and it said x in the book uh but you know I would go back to my hotel room each night I couldn't take um my copy of the book in with me so I didn't have a reference uh, handy where I could double check things uh, but I would go back at night and I would look at my notes and and the photos I was taking and the copies I was making and and look at the book and and I, I was beginning to piece together some of these inconsistencies and so even though I didn't go with the intention of, of uh, discrediting Wortham's reputation further uh, I really I, I started uh, in a way falling in love with these kids that uh, I was reading about in his notes uh, the kids that he quotes in the book and it over a period of months and over several visits Uh, to the Library of Congress, I really felt like I had to speak out and say something uh, for the memory of these kids uh, because these were real readers that he was uh, studying and and quoting from and it was, you know, these are real kids whose words he was using sometimes uh, incorrectly uh, out of context uh, to make his argument. Mm -hmm. And so it became important for me to to, to speak out uh, for them and I suspect uh, that some of them are still living um, you know I've have sort of uh, made a, a point of uh, keeping uh, them private I've I've done what I can to uh, mask their identities a little bit um, because these were kids who for uh, all intents and purposes, had pretty crappy lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know,
0: that's <laughs>
1: – I'm trying to, to do right by them.
0: Yeah, and, and just for example, guys, there's a there's a, a young girl that Carol mentions in her paper, uh, Dorothy. And Dorothy how, was speaking with Wortham in regards to Sheena and Wonder Woman and such. Uh, and he was making obviously the points we have all heard before about uh, Wortham's point. What he called him or called her a, a lesbian sadomasochist or something like that at some point.
1: Yeah, yeah, he he didn't have very kind things to say about Wonder Woman. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> but could, could you just explain to people what what Dorothy was really going through, if if that's okay?
1: Yeah, sure. So. Um... Uh, I, I don't have my paper in front of me, but uh, if I remember Dorothy correctly, she's the young girl who was brought in um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, she was truant from school. she uh, was also she had a reading disability. Um, and Wortham picked out this thing about uh, her affection for Sheena, um, you know, sort of the the jungle queen of comics. And was saying that if it weren't for Sheena that Dorothy would be uh, okay, that she would grow up and, and be a good, um, a good woman and, and her concept of right and wrong and of femininity would, would be fine. Uh, and what Wortham didn't tell readers about Dorothy and her experiences was that she talked about Sheena and talked about reading Sheena in the same context as uh, having just had the experience of her aunt being uh, mugged uh, by a, a group of uh, thugs, you know, this was a girl who uh, was living in extreme poverty. Really, didn't have much going on in her life. And so, as a as a non-psychiatrist, a non-psychologist, I can certainly look at that bigger context and say. You know, if I were ten or eleven or twelve or thirteen, and um, living through some of these experiences, I might want uh, what she perceived as a strong woman, Sheena and Wonder Woman. I might want one of those women as a role model. Um, and and Wortham didn't share, you know, this backstory and context with readers, so it just appeared that that Dorothy was. Um, you know, kind of a, a middle class uh, kid uh, who had a, a few small problems, and uh, Sheena was going to turn her into a ge- degenerate.
0: Yeah, and that's something that's always bothered me about Wortham, and I wanted to ask you. This kind of just popped into my head. Sure. He he makes all these claims, and he's obviously going to people who have social issues, be it you know how they relate to others <laughs> or or whatever, but is there anything in any of those papers where he actually interacts with someone who's like I actually I don't have a problem with comics whatsoever because he's picking and choosing the words that you know the kids who do have interaction with comics are are saying but is there anybody in any of his notes that he ever interacted with that said like actually uh, I'm this way because of you know something that happened in my past or something It has nothing to do with the comics they're just fun little stories
1: you know, I think that he heard sentiments like that from a lot of kids, but he believed that if he, uh, you know, sort of prodded or, or looked further, that um, he would still find comics uh, at the core of something that was going on in their lives that wasn't good. Uh, so even, for instance, he would he would hear from kids uh, occasionally that... You know, they learned something from watching the movies, you know, that they learned about uh, gangsters and they learned about uh, pickpocketing and whatever it was uh, by playing hooky and going to the movies. Um, But he often would uh, overlook uh, those statements. Uh, He often would uh, overlook statements about the kids who... Uh, were in street gangs and taking part in you know regular fights and gang initiations uh, he would uh, overlook a lot of the sexual abuse and the physical abuse and and still say you know maybe these things are bad but really if we just got rid of comics uh, it, it would all be okay <laughs> you know these kids lives would be so much better
0: um, yeah and you say you say in your paper and and. Is, it, is, uh, is this figure just delinquents or the entire populace of children? 90% of children and 80, 80% of teens read comics at the time. That, that is
1: sort of everyone, uh, and it's really hard to believe. So some of the figures uh, for comics readership, and, uh, and you can look around at a lot of different studies. So uh, market research studies, reading researchers, educational researchers – Um, And and it all fits together that something like 95, 96% of elementary school kids were reading comics uh, regularly at that point. And most uh, studies looked at both comic books and comic strips. And what they were finding was that kids were reading both. So they were, you know, reading the funnies in the paper and then reading the books. And a lot of these kids, it wasn't just that they were following one or two of their favorite Um, comics figures, but they might be uh, following a couple of dozen uh, favorite comic strips and an equal number of comic books. Uh, So they were what we might think of today as sort of excessive uh, comics readers. Uh, When you got into junior high, high school age, the figures of regular readership went down a little bit into the the 80% uh, range, 80-85% range. But what's interesting is that these figures seem to go across um, socioeconomic class lines, gender lines, uh, race and ethnicity. So you're gonna find that the girls were reading comics just as avidly as boys. Uh, They might have differed in some of the titles that they really liked to read, uh, but uh, it it was something that all kids did just like, uh, the, the stereotype today that all kids play video games or, you know, uh, all teens spend all of their time uh, texting and and hanging out on whatever hot social network it is at the moment. Uh, these kids really were absorbed uh, with comics.
0: Yeah, and, and that's part of my problem. That's, and I'm talking like even before, when I first heard of Worth and before I even read anything, one of the first things I heard was the link he, he made between all the kids are reading comics and there's an uptick in delinquency, so it must be because of these comics. You know, ba- that that was my, you know, kind of cond- super condensed, no experience view of what Worthing's <laughs> right. point was. But at the same time, I, even then, I started thinking to myself, but weren't all these kids also probably eating ice cream? <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it, it, it almost seemed like there he had it in mind that, okay – they're all reading this, so it must be the reason they're delinquents. But didn't take anything else into consideration.
1: Well, you know, he he gave lip service uh, to the idea that it was a kid's uh, overall environment that that created who they were, uh, and his sort of his viewpoint as a psychiatrist uh, was really from uh, the school of thought known as mental hygiene, which was the idea that if we uh, created these kind of ideal uh, social and personal environments for people that they would uh, grow to be healthy in sort of every respect. Uh, And so that was his guiding principle or his guiding understanding of uh, what it meant to be um, in, in good health. But at the same time, he did seem to, skip uh over that or sort of disregard it when it was convenient to to make the argument that uh, comics are are bad i mean he also it inc- incredibly exaggerated i think this idea of crime comics because he is really making the argument not just about well Superficially, he's making the argument that it's just crime comics that are bad. Um, But then he goes on to say that, you know, almost 90% of comics or something like that, that are published uh, in the 1940s and 1950s are crime comics. So... To get to that figure, he's lumping in things like Classics Illustrated and oh. Donald Duck and the Western comics and, you know, almost any of the funny animal comics. So if someone dinged someone on the head or, uh, you know, called uh, someone of, uh, maybe a, a bullying term, uh, whatever it was that that made it a crime comic, that element of violence, that element of antagonism uh, was enough to,
0: to turn it into Um, something that that he opposed. Even if it was something good like you know uh, uh, well I guess he would consider vigilantism bad but you know a a good guy stopping (laughs) a bad guy by throwing a punch and knocking him out.
1: Yeah that that was bad too. Yeah
0: he he really he he
1: didn't care for this what we would think of today as kind of the 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 good uh superman style justice you know superman started out very much as a uh and still is a, a hero for the underdogs uh, you know mom and apple pie and and all of that uh but he thought that superheroes and especially superman uh were part of a broader uh fascist ideology uh and it and that too
0: was corrupting for kids so, this is kind of a, a weird Why Then why did America <laughs> listen to him? Like, I mean, we all know his, his big points about, you know, Batman and Robin, and then uh, Superman being a fascist, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman and everything. Other than the, the points that everybody who has take, taken a, a quick glance at Wortham has heard about, what were the points that he made that made all of America go, this dude's right? I mean, I know that it was kind of the animosity towards comics was building up. Until this point, it wasn't like suddenly out of nowhere with the the, the juvenile delinquency trials, but
1: yeah. So it, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that Wortham took an argument that a lot of people were making uh, about comics, and he was an effective mouthpiece for it. I mean, he had the credentials. He had, uh, I think, the demeanor. Um, if you've ever seen a, a photo of him, he a lot of the the photos and caricatures um, that comics folks show of wortham he looks um, kind of crotchety and and very much uh you know silly psychiatrist uh, if you've seen the the psychiatrist on the animaniacs uh kind of like that uh, figure but um he you know by the accounts i have heard was was good looking there are some you know lovely photos he was a a tall kind of strapping man. Uh, and so he could sell this message. And, and the thing that's important about uh, this uh, hatred or dislike or fear of comics is that it didn't start with comic books. And I think a lot of people either don't know or forget that when comic strips uh, started uh being widely syndicated in the first decade of the 20th century Uh, and they started appearing uh, outside of just say New York and Chicago and San Francisco and they started infiltrating uh, more local papers there were uh, these waves of uprising uh, against comic strips uh, that that used many of the same arguments that then were used uh, 30 and 40 years later to denigrate comic books. So uh, in the first um, decade or so of the 20th century, you see uh, religious leaders and uh, school teachers and women's groups and the same kinds of people you saw in the 1940s and 50s um, saying about newspaper comic strips that these are going to turn kids into illiterate cretins uh, who are violent, who don't respect authority, who are going to grow up to be uh, debased uh, in every way. And there were campaigns to get rid of comic strips from newspapers. And some newspapers gave up comic strips Uh, for a while and then brought them back and and others you know did experiments to try to appease uh, some of these critics but when you see in uh, around 1940 when the arguments started against comic books you see a lot of the same rhetoric Uh, you look at Sterling North's uh, 1940 editorial and it's You know, the poisonous mushroom growth uh, of comics and a hypodermic injection of of sex and violence and uh, all of these uh, things that are going to happen to kids as comics readers. And and there's this whole decade and a half um, that leads up to seduction of the innocent, of people saying all of this uh, negative stuff about comics, of communities trying to regulate the sales of comics. And Wortham, a, a lot of his ideas just encapsulate all of this uh, rhetoric from these other groups and these other individuals. Uh, but he had a platform, he had this authority that made him uh, more effective. Uh, and I don't even know that he had a hard sell in some ways because there were lots of people already uh, irritated and frustrated and willing to believe what he had
0: to say. And I, I've also, uh, I've read Tencent Plague by David uh, yeah. Hajdu. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, Heydu. Do. Heydu. Do. I, I I say Heydu. <laughs> <But. laughs> well, the, you don't know this, but this, this show is historic for badly pronouncing names. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I remember one of the points he made in there was that basically the reason it didn't explode earlier was basically the first world war everybody's uh, attention shifted and you know there was there was bigger things to deal with than newspaper strips right is, is that a fair assessment or
1: yeah i mean i think that with with newspaper strips that was part of it although you know the first stuff was around 1905 1906 so it was about a decade before the first world war and and when it comes around to comic books i think You know, obviously, the Second World War uh, dampened a lot of the early criticism uh, because everyone was preoccupied Mm -hmm. uh, with that. So, yeah, I think there's there's something to that. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, one of the things uh, that we I think it's in Seduction of the Innocent itself. I've tried to read that a billion times. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's 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 entertaining if you can get if you can look at all the the uh, bombastic rhetoric is sort of entertaining. It's
0: okay if you
1: try to take it seriously, it's impossible.
0: It's not so much seriously. I just I just want to read it so I can have some basis of some of the stuff I say. You know, (laughs) but. But at the same time, it's just, it's so dry and I'm so angry when I read it. (laughs) It's it's almost impossible. But there are, there are images in there where he, you know, circles certain things or, you know, uh, you know, circling an armpit and saying that's, you know, that's, that's, that's code for a woman's vagina, you know, something like that is the, when I look at the, the horror and crime comics of the time now, I know his actual research and everything uh, he p- picked and chose words, and, and uh, as far as crime comics are concerned, he threw some things in there that obviously weren't crime and, and horror. But right. when you look at some of those old comics, I mean, it's hard to say that Wortham had no, <laughs> no business whatsoever saying what he did. Because some of it's pretty pretty graphic, I mean, even by our standards today, to be giving to kids. Uh-huh.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of really grotesque stuff and I spend a lot of my uh, free time uh, sort of sifting through uh, old comics, especially those that are in the public domain. And uh, there's some really not just stupid stuff, but racist and and violent and sexist uh, imagery. There's, you know, some of the storylines are things that you know, I don't think, as you said, that a lot of people would think is is suitable reading material for kids on a variety of levels. Um, at the same time, uh, I think it's important to to realize that uh, all of this, uh, all of these comics, um, were consumed by kids in a very different time than what we live in now um their, these kids' lives were very different in some ways than ours now. Uh, the other media they had access to was very different. Um, you know, I, I think especially uh, most of these kids had grown up uh, during World War II. They were growing up during the Korean War. They uh, were, living through the the early years of the Cold War uh, and, you know, the fear of of nuclear uh, weapons, um, the ideas about what was uh, proper or appropriate in terms of uh, relationships between the sexes, relationships uh, among people of different races, uh, all of that's very different than... Uh, what our experience is now. And so I think it's important to uh, remember that as we critique some of these uh, images and some of these texts today uh, because there are some things that were very different. I think it's also important to understand that when we read something, um we have our own set of experiences that we bring to that text Mm -hmm. Uh, and so when i look at a comic or uh, even if i watch a movie or whatever it happens to be uh, i'm having a very different experience of that comic or movie or uh, magazine or, or radio program whatever it is i'm having a very different experience Uh, than you are or than anyone else is Um, and there are going to be some things that just don't make any sense to me there are going to be some things that trigger certain uh, fears or anxieties or uh, you know make me happy that aren't going to affect you in the same way and so I I also think it's really important to remember that individual readers including individual kids are going to take these comics in uh, individual, unique ways that we can't predict. Um, And I'm not sure uh, that Wortham really understood that. I mean, I think for him, uh, he saw certain things uh, in comics and he wasn't able to, to let go of the idea that kids saw those same things too
0: do you is there anything in the notes at all in his in his research or i mean it's quote unquote i mean i don't want to say quote unquote because i i don't know (laughs) but scientific research in his in his research is there anything in there that would lead you to believe that it was personal to him because it it almost feels like it's personal like if i were to take a look at the comics of the time i personally think to myself well you, you can make your point just by showing some of these covers. You don't have to, you know, exacerbate some of the stuff you're saying you're hearing from these kids. It, it, it's just right there on the cover. You don't have to say anything. I mean, it, it, but the fact that he threw so much time and effort and published a book and went in front of the Senate and everything, <laughs> it, it, it just feels personal in some respects. Do, do you get that at all from his research?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely became uh, an obsession with him, so he he first started looking at comics and thinking about comics uh, in 1947, uh, so seven years before Seduction of the Innocent came out, uh, and he got, you know, a, a little more uh, interested, there was this sort of wave of stuff he did that was comics related in uh, early 1948 and he actually uh, wrote to someone uh, late in 1948 and he said you know i really expected to be done with comics by now uh but it it looks you know i'm I'm paraphrasing really loosely uh but you know i haven't fixed everything so it's i'm going to be in it working with comics for a while longer uh and as he progressed over the next few years I think it did become increasingly personal, Uh, he did seem to develop particular uh, interests in discrediting uh, individuals and particular organizations, Uh, it it did become more consuming. Um, At the same time, uh, it it wasn't that any of this was making him rich, Uh, he wasn't uh getting money for speaking engagements uh you know if he spoke somewhere they were paying for his transportation and a small honorarium but he turned down a lot of these speaking engagements and or gave them to colleagues uh, at one of the clinics he was working uh, where he was working he wasn't getting lots of money from uh, his book or from the magazine articles or anything else. So it was very personal. He, he wasn't seeing a, a lot of uh, financial gain and he certainly wasn't getting any uh, peer accolades from uh, other psychiatrists. Uh, you know, occasionally he would get messages of goodwill, but um, he wasn't being rewarded uh, by doing this. Um in a lot of overt ways other than the the letters of support he was getting from parents and, and uh, teachers and uh, folks like that.
0: When you say that he, you know, personally called individuals out, would you say uh, Bill Gaines was one of them?
1: You know, that's really hard. I don't, No, not exactly. Uh, the, okay. people he was, the, the people he was most upset with were the folks, um, well, there were sort of two groups. So the, the folks who were employed uh, by this organization called the Child Study Association, which was a parents' uh, education group, mm-hmm. um, and they published some studies uh, and did work that was favorable to the comics industry. Uh, And two of their uh, key employees were uh, paid advisors uh, of um, two different comics companies. So uh, Josette Frank uh, was for about 15 years um, uh, retained by DC Comics to uh, serve on its editorial advisory board. Uh, and uh, Sidoni Grunberg uh, worked for a while for Fawcett Comics in the same capacity. And these women weren't getting rich from this comic stuff either, but Frederick Wortham felt that uh, they were doing a disservice, that they somehow hadn't disclosed their connections uh, adequately enough, even though their names were printed uh, like in, inside the covers of all of these comics magazines, and they never hid it. Uh, from anyone. He also was really upset with another psychiatrist by the name of Loretta Bender. And she also was a member of the editorial advisory board for DC Comics. Uh, and he uh, he had special um, well, hatred is probably too strong a word, but he, he really did not like these people. Uh, and he he did what he could to uh, take them down, so to speak. Uh, so he didn't seem to have a particular beef with any individual comics publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, if you was going to, if you had to pick one, it would be DC Superman um, because they in many ways had the, the deepest pockets uh, and he felt that they were hiding behind their editorial advisory board uh, and uh, maybe the wholesome image of Superman uh, but he, he didn't really single uh, anyone out uh, among the publishers. Um,
0: Do you think it, it was focused on DC more of a like you take out the alpha male you take out the rest of the pack kind of a thing?
1: Yeah I, I, I think so. I think so. It was, yeah, he, you know, and I I think that he had reason to be concerned about DC because they they probably were the company that could have um, caused him the the most uh, trouble if they had wanted to pursue uh, claims of of slander or libel against him. Uh Um, So when he... (laughs) <laughs> when he published uh, Seduction of the Innocent, his publisher, Reinhardt, uh, had it vetted by a legal team and they came back with, you know, several pages of uh, materials that they wanted him to change or to soften or to provide citations for uh, so that he wouldn't be sued. And he, he made a few of the changes, but mostly he just decided to, to leave things alone. So the the publisher's legal team was certainly worried uh, that he was going to
0: inflame uh, some of these comics publishers. The only reason I asked about uh, Bill Gaines is because when you watch the the footage from the the subcommittee, you kind of when when he shows all those covers, a lot of that is Bill's stuff. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, and then in, in I think in uh, in Bill's own testimony, he lashes out at Wortham, so it kind of felt like some animosity between the two. So that's why I asked.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that Gaines, he certainly didn't care much for Wortham. Um, and and there, there was a lot going on there. I mean, I think that Bill Gaines was a very smart guy. He had a strong connection uh, with his readers. Uh, and he had he, he began to to organize his readership. Uh, around the time of the Senate hearings to get them to uh, speak out about their experiences. So you can look at some of the editorials and and things that he was publishing uh, in his comics. And he was calling on uh, kids and and his other comics readers to uh, write to the Senate to speak out, to let them hear from uh, quote-unquote normal comics readers. And... A fairly sizable number of kids took them up on that. One of the projects I'm working on now is is looking and 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 trying to track down some of these kids who wrote to the Senate uh, in 1954, uh, inspired by Bill Gaines, and I, I found some of them. Um, and uh, let me tell you that, that 60 years on, they're still pissed off about what happened. Um, uh, they're still angry uh, with the Senate and with Wortham.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't – I I agree with him. But after reading Tencent Plague <laughs> and after seeing what David spoke of in there, Gaines kind of hung himself <laughs> in, in his testimony, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there is that. The, I mean, I, I respect the guy and everything that he did. But and basically he was one of the only ones who spoke on behalf of the comics industry as a whole. So uh, props to him. But I mean, he just he basically hung himself with that testimony.
1: Yeah, it, it wasn't probably his best day, <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: obviously. But um, yeah, I, I think that. In some ways, he ultimately benefited, I think, that uh, the comics industry uh, as a whole maybe ultimately benefited from uh, this uh, sort of witch hunt or or critique of of what they were doing. Because I I think it – well, you know, you think about a lot of the underground comics artists, uh, the folks who – started drawing comics in the 60s and in the 70s, these were uh, the kids whose, whose comics were taken away from them uh, in the mid-50s. Uh, and, you know, just like the, the people I've talked to who wrote to the Senate or who wrote to Wortham, um, they channeled that anger uh, into creating something more provocative, um, something uh, more mature in comics.
0: Yeah. And that's something we mentioned in the first episode is it, it, the, the gentleman I had on Mike Gallagher, he's an artist himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, as I can, I don't consider myself a professional writer, but I consider myself, you know, a, a, a writer in, in some respect, any kind of creative restraint, I don't like it, but with, at least with art, you've got ways to work around it. Your, your creative juices start flowing. So it, I mean, if, if the industry continued fast and loose and they could do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted and however many titles they wanted to do it in, it wouldn't force them into a bottleneck to try new things.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there there was a lot of crap and, and the crap wasn't <laughs> just that it was violent or that it was sadistic or, uh, you know, uh, whatever. It, it was crap because it was um, – you know it was cookie cutter it was everyone was copying everything and and you were the people were churning out stories churning out art as as fast as they could because it was making a, a lot of people a lot of money uh, when you look at comic sales in 1953 that was a, a billion new issues sold in the U.S. that year um, and then back issues and the publishers didn't benefit from the sale of back issues but uh, that was, you know, a lot of comics. That was more than 30 comics for every person uh, who was alive in the U.S. Um, sold that year. And so, of course, there was going to be a lot of crap because it, you just had to keep up with the, with the demand and the, the pressure to, to put new content out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, and I don't want to keep you too much longer, but you did mention sure. the, these, these kids that wrote into the Senate. Mm-hmm. I don't have, obviously, an extensive history with this because I'm I'm kind of just semi-newly soaking sure. in all of this stuff, <laughs> but I don't remember ever hearing about these letters. Where, did, did they receive them and just never did anything with them? It was never mentioned in court, or what?
1: So a lot of the letters came in uh, after the hearings concluded, so they were coming in in June, July, and on into the fall, and... I didn't know about them either. I went to the National Archives to look through the Senate records uh, for the hearings, and I stumbled across this trove of letters. And When I went back to see if someone had written about them and I just hadn't noticed, uh, I did find a, a page, a little bit less than a page, about these letters uh, in uh, Amy Nyberg's book uh, on the Comics Code called Seal of Approval. And uh, I like her book a lot, uh, but in, in retrospect, uh, she sort of lumped all of these letters together and said, you know, they're, they're really not that interesting, uh, that <laughs> uh, they, they all kind of read alike and, you know, these are, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids writing in, uh, so we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about it. But I've been really fascinated by Uh, Some of the letters, I mean, a lot of them are uh, pretty generic, you know, don't take my comics away from me. I like to read comics. I'm a good kid. Uh, But some of these kids were making really sophisticated uh, arguments uh, about uh, the First Amendment, uh, about um, their uh, civic responsibility, about what it meant to be a comics reader, uh, and so you know, as I mentioned, this is one of the things I'm working on. Uh, there were kids who wrote to Wortham too. Uh, and I've got a chapter coming out, I hope later this year about some of these letters. Um, and you know one of the kids that uh, wrote into the Senate, uh, he you know wrote this really passionate letter uh, talking about, uh, you know, this isn't Russia uh, kind of thing. Uh, I'm a good, Uh, I'm a good clean kid Uh, you'd be happy to have me for um, a son and when I found him I got to talk to him on the phone last year Uh, and and this guy is recently retired as a district attorney uh, in New Jersey Uh, and I sent him a copy of the letter and and one of the things he told me was I I couldn't have written a better letter today Uh, and, and this is a guy who turned out okay and who certainly has a much more nuanced understanding of the law, uh, than he did as a 13 year old. Uh, but he still was really proud of that letter. Um, looking back on it.
0: Right. I, I, I would be too, I've never, like I said, I've never heard of these, so it, it would be, I'm really interested in seeing this when you, when you come <laughs> out with it. Cool. One of the things I wanted to end on, and I, I asked you this earlier, but, uh, but our, our show has actually had an episode dedicated to the LGBT community in, in comics and specifically mm-hmm. in Green Lantern. One of the things, and, you know, just for the listeners out there who've only heard surface stuff about Wortham, they've heard stuff about uh, him claiming that Batman and Robin were gay. And mm-hmm. then the stuff about Wonder Woman and Sheena. And now you yourself are a gay woman, right? I am. So... Are Wortham's claims, you think, just a product of the times? You know, with these letters, you know, I remember David mentioning something about uh, some another kid had wrote a sophisticated letter to a newspaper, and they had published it, and all the letters from people after that letter was published said a kid couldn't have written this. You know. Yeah, that's the David Wegranski letter. Right. So that's a great one. So was all of this. A product of the times, or were things like Wortham's claims regarding uh, homosexuality in comics more? Was there something more there?
1: You know, that's a tough one. So um, he, he did hear, he did talk with uh, gay kids, uh, and they did have some attraction uh, to uh, particular kinds of characters, but him turning in uh, the the whole Batman and Robin relationship and the Wonder Woman thing, I mean, his, his objection in part to Wonder Woman was uh, a comic story where she uh, adopts a girl whose parents supposedly have been killed, uh, and he objects that to a scene where they're sitting at breakfast uh, talking about the value of eating a healthy breakfast uh, as that being some sort of weird romantic thing going on. Uh, but as a whole, I think that Wortham w- was fairly liberal and accepting of homosexuality, uh, especially for the the 1940s and 1950s. Mm-hmm. Part of his work was with an organization uh, he founded called the Quaker uh, Readjustment Quaker Service Readjustment Center. Uh, that might not be quite right, uh, but it predominantly treated um, uh, gay men who had been uh, sentenced uh, by a judge to, to seek treatment, you know, because it was uh, still a crime uh, in the 1940s and 50s uh, to be gay in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he, his interaction with these kids, um, with uh, folks who identified as gay. Was not harsh. It was it was warm and understanding. Um, at, at the same time, he also uh, understood that this was not uh, normative, uh, and so he was trying, I think, to work within that uh, his ideas about sex that you know healthy sex is healthy sex. Um, didn't quite fit with uh, American sexual norms. So that, that that's a long answer. Is there really something to Wonder Woman being gay and Batman being gay? Uh, probably not.
0: Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't see it either. It seems like a, <laughs> it seems like. I mean, the the Wonder Woman like kind of S and M stuff where her being tied up all the time. I mean, it, it's it's yeah. almost every other panel. So it's kind of hard. And, and plus, with the history of Marsden himself, it's kind of, right. it's kind of hard not to say that that is there. But the whole right. the the homosexual aspect of it, I mean, if anything's a reach, it just seems like reaching, you
1: know. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've heard that some of the folks who uh, worked on Batman and Robin, for instance, intentionally played up the homoeroticism after uh, that critique came out in Seduction of the Innocent, and, and with Wonder Woman, I, I mean, William Ulton Marston is uh, one of the Uh, Weirdest figures I think of 20th century America and he intentionally created uh, this uh, kind of bizarre uh, sexualized uh, creation uh, for these very specific purposes of getting people to think about love and submission and dominance. I mean, it had S and M and bondage and domination all over it. And and that was intentional from Marston.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you about that because I mean, you, you can like, like he did, you can pick certain pick and choose certain panels to say whatever you want to say. Right. But you got to read it's, it's context. You got to read what, read between the lines like i remember I w- uh, some documentary i watched uh i think it was on the history of uh, superman it was uh they were talking about how they couldn't air a certain commercial for the adventures of superman breakfast mm-hmm. or something because it was uh, it was uh clark and jimmy and at one point lois was supposed to come in and that was controversial because what would the woman <laughs> be doing at the breakfast table ah uh, kind of a thing yeah
1: yeah, you know, it, it was a, a really different time. Um, and, and I think that you've just uh, helped me come up with, pardon me, with my tagline for the Wortham stuff, which is uh, Wortham didn't do context. I mean, that that's uh, what happened with a lot of the uh, evidence and his understanding of, of how kids were responding to comics. And that certainly, I think, was how he, um, how he, worked with the comics themselves i mean it was all uh context free (laughs) so he could pick those panels out or pick those quotes out to to make whatever point he felt he needed to make
0: I expect the appropriate credit, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ne- next thing I write, Chad, is all yours. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Well, well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. So uh, is there anything else uh, that you've got coming out that you'd like to talk about? You are talking about those uh, letters that you were uh, working out, hopefully getting out later this year. Is there anything that you can talk about uh, that you want to promote <laughs> or anything else?
1: Uh, you know, I've got a couple of other papers out recently that I'm proud of. One is um, – I- looking at um, how uh, D.C. national comics in the 1930s and 40s did some really interesting things uh, to promote kids reading uh, and not their comics reading, uh, but just their uh, reading in general. Um, And uh, that's out. You can also find a a preprint copy of it on uh, academia.edu under my name. Uh, There's another paper coming out. that You can also find a preprint for called Comics, a so once-missed opportunity that uh, looks at some of the early kinds of participatory culture uh, around comics, so some of the early uh, fan communities and other kinds of things. It, it looks a little bit at some of the letters that kids were writing to.
0: I've got a copy of that. I just haven't gotten to it yet.
1: Well, I, I hope you like it. <laughs>
0: Uh, It's only been in the past few years. uh, Just you know, just for yourself, I started reading comics maybe 2008 regularly, uh, and I've dove in headfirst and started. uh, All of a sudden, I heard about Wortham, and I picked that up, and then I dove into the history of the comics industry and. Classic comics. I, I've got the knowledge, basically, of a, uh, of someone who's been reading for the for years, but I still can't get enough. <laughs> so, so, well, that that's a good thing. Yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I recently learned. Uh, Danny O'Neill said it in an interview uh, a while back. He said, "As I got older, I realized learning is fun." <laughs>
1: It is. It, is. it is. When you find that thing that really grabs your passion,
0: uh, it's awesome. Uh, it is. And thank you so much for for coming on here and sharing your passion with us. I really do appreciate you taking the time out you know, at nine something in the evening to, to, <laughs> to talk about this, all, all this stuff with us.
1: You're really welcome, Chad. Thank you for asking.
0: Good luck with all your future ventures.
1: All right. Thanks. Have a great evening. You too.
0: All right, and that's going to do it for this episode of The Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. So short one, oh, relatively short one for you guys this time around. Uh, don't forget to check out the show notes uh, both on the website at lanterncast.com as well as on the forums, which you can also find at lanterncast.com. and Just click the uh, forum link. Um, check out the show notes for this episode so you can uh, find Carol on Twitter as well as... Um, Visit her website for some of her other uh, items there, uh, and her research and and writings and stuff. So thank you so much to Carol Tilly for coming onto the show. I Really appreciate it once more, and uh, really great information for you guys out there. Next episode, come hell or high water, folks, we're doing it. We're gonna review Green Lantern, Green Arrow number seventy six. I know, I know, we're three episodes in. A year plus some in to this uh, spinoff podcast, and we still haven't reviewed a single issue of the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, but it's happening, folks. Finally, episode four will be a review of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 76. I promise. Well, as long as, you know, something incredibly uh, intense and incredibly relevant to the series uh, doesn't come out before then... Absolutely, uh, and I, I I don't I can't think of anything at the moment. So, um, all right. So, uh, if you want to contact us, you can always shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you at lanterncast at gmail dot com or shoot us a voicemail seven zero eight lantern, and uh, we'll definitely be able to play that on the air and uh, listen and respond to your feedback. Really appreciate that, and would love some feedback for this particular. Uh, you know a subset of the podcast you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and like or follow us there respectively you can also visit the website lanterncast.com and you'll find a link to our forum and then the Facebook page and Twitter and everything so follow us there uh, check it out join the forum join the conversation we'd love to uh, hear from you in there and have you participate with us in that in that medium um, so Get out your trade paperbacks. Get out your single issues. Uh, Next episode of LanternCast presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. We will be covering Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Number 76, the inaugural issue of the Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams infamous run on the series. So uh, until next time, guys, um, I'm Chad Bogleman, and this is LanternCast presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Talk to you next time.
1: It is my opinion without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation that comic books are an important contributing
0: factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency.